Whiskey Bulldogs acknowledges that we reside on the lands of the people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. If you'd like to learn more, go to reconciliation.org.au. Gone direction! Whiteman! What about that climb? Tiny little man just sat on Max's head. To Barney Smith score. Towards goal. Barney Smith as he got the dogs in off Bradley Welcome to episode seven of the Whiskey Bulldogs podcast, the only podcast for bevy and bevo enthusiasts. I am your host, Tim Outhred. Thank you for listening and for your feedback on what we're doing. Feel free to share the links to Whiskey Bulldogs with friends, family, and folks that you think could be a potential guest. This episode, I will bring you news, tips, Bulldogs v. Cats review, and Bulldogs v. Power preview. Theme of the week is connections. Uh, given that it's something Bulldogs might work on from last week, and also having enjoyed meeting and chatting to footy fans new and old, but also whiskey fans at the game, um, including specifically a Glenn Morangy fan. So I decided to review one of the Glenn Morangies that I have. Um, it's a, quite a nice release, the Cadball Estate 15-year-old is not only delicious and approachable but is interesting because of its field to glass connection and this one came through the whiskey club in the news eagle elijah hewitt sustained a head injury following a shoulder charge by magpie jordan degoey which forced hewitt off his feet and led him to leave the field with concussion Dugowie has received a suspension of three matches from the tribunal after the hit, which was graded as high, uh, careless and severe by the match review panel. We wish Hewitt all the best in his recovery and saw that he would most likely be okay for his return to play shortly. Of course, Australian rules football is a contact sport with known risks to amateurs and professionals alike, and not all head injuries can be prevented as most will be accidental. But the AFL has shown rightly that careless or intentional acts are not part of the game and should be sanctioned with rulings commensurate with the severity or intent of the act itself and have called for an approach that is regardless of outcome. This seems fair because the outcomes are not known until later or are more intangible, but I somewhat disagree with that approach. I think you can have it somewhat both ways within just the rules and the scope of the game where, where there's an immediate sanction applied for the act separate from any outcome, but then have the sanction reviewed if the outcomes to a player's return to play are more severe. 
Of course, you cannot sanction a player for the more intangible health outcomes years down the track, but I think there is a place for further sanctions applied for outcomes within that season, given the rules already set out for head injuries for return to play. At the moment, the way things have played out, the sanctions are barely punishments for careless acts, as three or more games is only just one more than what a victim might have to stay on the sideline under concussion rules alone, even if it was an accident. In this ruling, Dugowie's action was not permissible and he's banned this week for three games. If Hewitt was unable to play for longer than two games under the concussion rules because of, say, ongoing symptoms, I don't think that is fair play to Hewitt or his team or to a game that wants to be more serious about head injury. The tribunal should be able to review suspensions for extension in line with more severe outcomes that are only known until the coming 10 days or so. Also, a repeat offence for threat to the head should be considered. In which case, it would make sense for the tribunal to rule an immediate indefinite suspension of at least three weeks until return to play outcomes are known after 10 days on the victim side. A change could be instituted within the farcical pseudo-legal system the Air Force uses to be a more analogous to a real-world system that would have hearings to determine verdicts and then punishment rulings done separately at a later different time. When a guilty verdict would already carry a minimum suspension time of three weeks, it would allow the tribunal to take into account outcomes known at a slightly later date. On to the tips, uh, round 12 was a buy round for Lions, Dockers, Saints and Swans. And there were only seven matches uh, last weekend. I tipped Demons to dominate Blues, Power to dominate Hawks, Magpies to comprehensively dominate Eagles. So was doing well until then when the Dogs lost to the Cats. Suns did come good against the Crows as Rafi of the Week. But I missed changing my tip on the AFL website uh, as I laid down my tips of the week on the pod already. Um, so I am one behind on where I should have been. Um, instead of the Giants scraping the win, uh, it went Tiger's way at the Big Orange Stadium. And Essendon did take a win from the Kangaroos. So on the official AFL tipping, I got four from seven, but had I done it right this week um, and changed the tip according to what I said I'd laid down uh, earlier, um, it would have been five and I would have maintained an equal first position on the comp at work. But so I'll make sure that the tips are correct for this week on the app um, for round 13. I'm tipping swans dogs as roughy of the week as my pick um based on the dogs um i don't think they will make large changes to the team although we're hoping for it um they just might change their mentality and approach and that will be hard to uh gauge until the actual night of the game on friday whether that plays out well 
Um, then I'm tipping lions, crows, dockers, giants, bombers, and magpies. I think the games to watch, uh, although I'm biased, are Dogs v Power, um, but also Demons and Magpies um, to see what kind of potential matchups are occurring at the higher end on the ladder. And I think with Blues and Bombers by a large margin in third um, as one to watch, but it'd still be an interesting game if the scores are close and I'll get an alert on the phone that they are and then might watch some of that. So, um, yeah, interesting games ahead, I think. So this week was uh, dogs versus cats, and we were out with my dad and my wife's associates and her large group of Sons of the West Cold Programs uh, participants and their families, Cold uh, being culturally and linguistically diverse background uh, folks who were there to uh, learn more about the great game of AFL football and to cheer on the mighty Western Bulldogs. Also, outside of the stadium at Marvel that night, saw Salty Bulldogs podcasters Nick Galea and Matt Donald, and had a nice chat with them, and also with their friend that they also have on the podcast every now and again, Brad Sultana. And thank you guys for the follow. Also in front sitting were Swanborn Juniors FC, um, out in WA, and they were supporting the Bulldogs uh, this game. They were on a footy trip from Perth uh, over a long weekend that they're having over there, and they came in numbers to Melbourne to watch a stack of games on the weekend, which was great to see. Also, connecting with Bulldogs fans new and old this week, uh, and definitely the best part of the this was attending the home game at Marvel. We were all hoping for a boost in confidence for the team, uh, especially for the forwards under the roof at home, but it wasn't to be, was it? Defenders were strong at the beginning against the Cats, um, who just uh, found a way around them um, at key moments. So um, they did look like they were struggling a little bit. There were some key position changes for the Dogs that did make sense uh, for a win against the Cats. So we'll look into that in a moment. Dogs were in control by the second and were still within range of the wind in the, thir in the third quarter, uh, holding possession and keeping a lead against the visitors. English was every everywhere and everything to the dogs and was best on ground. It would have been a performance at the top of his highlight reel uh, had the dogs come away with the win against the Premiers this week and had his opportunity at goal not hit the post. English had 27 disposals, 30 hitouts, 14 contested possessions, 8 tackles, and 8 score involvements. Daniel, Dale, Libba, and Trelaw, who was back from injury, all had great games. Richards was on track to have a blinder, doing his usual routine and having kicked a goal. From inside the centre square! From inside the centre! 
until coming off injured with probably a higher grade hamstring, uh, looking like a moderate grade um, as per reports. Of, so he'll be off for four to probably eight weeks. And he will join JJ on the sideline for a while, um, who is nursing a similar injury. Gardner and Jones seem to not be able to withstand constant forward pressure from the Cats to prevent Cameron Hawkins and Rowan running up the scoreboard. Bont was relatively quiet and perhaps with some knee, left knee soreness, which started back in Ballarat. So I'll just do a rundown of events in quarters and then on to my take of the game overall. In the first quarter, we had good movement forward and good connections. Norton with the first goal from close range. And we noticed that Lobb was further back at half forward, which was a good move and he could rove around a little more and it looked like he was being unmatched by Cats in defence. Richards with the spoil and the dribble kick. From inside the centre square! From inside the centre! And Trelaw we saw frustrated by a calf injury, um, which we thought could have been his hamstring again, given his off-field antics throwing his mouth guard away, but later came back, put the mouth guard in, and later kicked a goal. So a brilliant comeback from injury and an injury scare before and during the game. And he snagged it. A good one from 50. Bailey Smith with the goal uh, got the crowd going as well. And that was Tom Stewart's intercept uh, spoiling defense. And then Cats finding channels back to their forward 50. Gardner against Cameron seemed like a fair matchup initially, as was the Liam Jones and Tim English on Hawkins, and they seemed to be intercepting well and were involved in scores. By the second quarter, pretty much it was a one-for-one one goals uh, and pretty even at halftime, and heavy pressure from both teams. It was such a, a good game watching clean footy. Play calmed down and Bulldogs inside 50s were not finding another dog. So just kicks, just going to grass, going to no one, going to grass, but no one trying to chase for an, a contested mark or break away from anything inside 50. In the third quarter, after surging forward, dogs lost to Stewart in uncontested intercepts. O'Donnell, with the first goal of his uh, AFL career, um, gained some confidence for him, I'm sure. And the reaction from the team was heartwarming. The Bonts set shot at goal could have really lifted the team, instead scoring uh, just a minor score, uh, but then quickly got possession back for Yugel Hagen to get the dogs ahead. Dogs looked in control in the midst of the quarter until late with the return goals after holding some possession. Then we lost Ed Richards, who had been so successful of late, um, probably cost us at a reshuffle um, that was required. And the Bond also going to rooms for assessment, but returning to play quickly thereafter with more strapping on his left knee. Who knows what kind of uh, status his knee is at the moment. Maybe we're going to see the rest of the season playing out where he's more quiet, like in 2022. McNeil and Williams missed opportunities to return a goal after a 50 meter penalty following a brief surge by the Cats, which gave them a small lead and could have returned the dogs back into a favorable momentum. 
In the fourth quarter, Dogs couldn't goal at all, uh, racking up only minor scores and kicking out in the full. And Cats also kept Dogs outside their arc. Artie Jones uh, with a good opportunity to lift the roof and make it an Artie party again, but kicked early to miss the goal when he still had room running forward. Overall, Cats looked composed and patient when going inside 50 to ensure better set shot positions. You can see from the mark score scatter, which I'll put up in the show notes and social posts, that the Cats had all scores from within side 50 and goals were scored around 20 to 30 metres from easier angles. For the dogs, I count eight goals to seven behinds inside 50 to two goals to seven behinds outside the arc. Norton had one goal inside 50 and one behind. Although there was good movement in the first quarter inside 50, Bulldogs made it harder for themselves, looking more rushed and more panicked at the last moments, kicking up high to a pack rather than taking one more 15 to 20 meter kick mark to reposition from outside wide to further inside 50 and gain a better angle at a shot at goal. Maybe dogs have lost confidence in scoring overall. So many tried for individual effort rather than re-establishing good team connections to Norton and Eugle Hagen, who should have been looking for contested marks inside 50 rather than out. Love was Roving well in the periphery as a third option to get a set shot or take a mark. Uh, But, you know, they could have been more opportunity to use Lob to bring one in for Norton and Hagen in a contest closer to goal, with Smalls picking up the scraps. Why not change something when a player who is having many shots at goal to have a shot at goal from outside 50 metres to take the mouth guard out, waste time and kick it? From a low yield position. It would only reduce their confidence in their kicking action when that's not the problem. You'll have to be one of the greatest players of all time to be accurate outside 50 from wide angles day in day out and I doubt they would even train for that and nor they should. Yes I'm not looking at all the misses and whatnot but it does show that we are not using Norton and Hagen effectively. Some have said to put Norton in defense or sack the lot of them or bring Bruce back forward. Um, but I think the midfield and half forward players have something to say about making the connections between those positions and the key forwards inside 50. And I think that this issue was more obvious and more pronounced in this game, just looking at the scatter. When you look at the other scoring scatter diagrams for other games this season, uh, win or lose, it has been much tighter. But still with Lobb and Hagen finding themselves at a disadvantage taking set shots from wide angles near the arc. It appears the dogs have changed things for Lobb now, for this, for this game past. Uh, now that he's roving more inside 50, and that seems like a good move. But Eugle Hagen um, is really not trying to do the same. Maybe the focus on inaccuracy of late got to the dogs for this game, and that's where they've been more panicked and tried to kick goals from outside the arc. 
Hugo Hagen had one goal inside 50 and no behinds. He had three set shots outside 50, all behinds, mostly from wide angles. Incredibly difficult shots, but he shouldn't be in the position to be asked or expected to kick these. Either he should be asked to leave the mouth guard in and kick one more short kick inside 50, or he should be inside the arc trying to contest the ball from a half forward player. So it's not only on Norton or Jamara to take low chance contested marks from low yield set shot positions. Focus is mostly on the goal kicker to improve accuracy, but the Bulldogs are not optimizing chances inside 50 like the top teams or the premiership teams like the Cats are. Bring players like Caleb Smith or the Bont out wide when at half forward to kick inside to the key forwards inside 50 at better ki kicking positions. The Bont could show some leadership in not trying to kick from set shot outside 50 as well. The Bont could show some leadership in not trying to kick from set shot outside 50 as well, so that the other non-forwards or half-forwards do not attempt shots at goal from set shot and try to capitalize on moves by the forwards inside 50. The Bont did appear frustrated at Ewell Hagen at one point in the game for not kicking into contest when outside 50, but he did the same himself. Yes, Bailey Williams can kick a goal, uh, but it shouldn't be on him to do so from set shot from outside 50. Goals on the run, yes, they can come from the Bont and his midfield or even defenders in an open goal square, but it shouldn't be up to them to kick from set shot outside 50. It's just dumb. They, they wouldn't train for it. They should be training for score involvements and for when opposition defenders regain possession when there's been a forward push uh, at an opposition's uh, defense so that when the opposition does receive a ball again they're ready to be on the tack again and to defend our own inside 50 zone we have seen this year like a, a large spread of goal kickers and attempters in the bulldogs and it seems like everyone's just having a crack the top teams do not do this they have key forwards who are inside 50 and kick the goals. Simple as that. We seem to have a midfield who are elite, but also want to kick the goals themselves, can't, and are not told to kick to contest inside 50. And they should just stay outside the arc just a little more, I think. We saw that in defense, when Cats regained possession from the Bulldogs' attempts at goals, the Bulldogs' mids who were forward either because having a shot or they were just trying to support a contest just outside 50, were then left out of position and then scrambling to get back as untagged cat's mids who found fast channels with little resistance back into their forward half. And then Jones and and O'Brien and Jure and they were just left with an onslaught of, of cats bounding at them, uh, which, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't always defend again. I think Dogs just expected to kick more goals at home under the roof this week rather than trying to work the ball to better positions to optimize accuracy and didn't seem to try to recognize or change the approach when it wasn't working. I hope that something was learned in the midfield and that the individual players consider not taking set shots themselves from wide angles unless inside 50 
but as a team not to expect or allow key forwards to receive a ball outside 50 to then attempt at the goal. Captain Bontempelli and Aaron Norton could use their leadership roles to make calls on field to discourage low yield set shots if needed at certain points in the game. Anyway, that was a highly critical look at the uh, Dogs-Cats game, uh, but I think everyone was disappointed and quite frustrated by that game, uh, more so than the Suns game, where it seemed like it was simple inaccuracy that was at play, whereas this game, it seemed like, for me, uh, the inaccuracy reporting and probably pressure that they're putting on themselves to try just try to get any kind of score really got to them and it it showed in both where the attempts at goal were being made from but also in how the players were distributed and not splitting from packs to uh, get quick and easy short kick set shots from inside 50. So now we are halfway through the season, basically. Uh, now that we're at round 13 um, with a bye round coming up, found themselves in the eight, but not quite in contention for the top four. Looking ahead to the match against Power, they are on a roll with their forwards finding the big sticks, which is getting them nine wins in a row. The only way dogs could stem that wave would be to win possession and optimize inside 50. In that sense, the team would have to change uh, mid and half forward connections to the forward line and have excellent defensive matchups and maintaining defense in the midfield to prevent a massive loss to power, surging back down the field and taking the snags. I think loss is more likely anyway at this stage if no changes are made but I am banking my tip on the dogs this week with a chance because uh, they might try some new things to take a close win and be even slim chance contenders for fourth position by end of season. I think tipsters would be waiting for the team list of the dogs to come out before laying their pick um, and would probably lean power if their changes aren't made, including a sensible replacement for the now elite Ed Richards. With Ed Richards and JJ out, we'll need a fast halfback with safe hands, and I don't think McNeil has earned that position as a starting player just yet. I think McNeil should get longer gaiden time in the VFL rather than mostly sit on the bench in the AFL. And Hannon or Crozier could be the sub this week. I was thinking for a reshuffle in defense that would bring in Bruce uh, in fullback with Jones, which could bring Gardner more forward to halfback. But Crozier looks in good form this week after doing well in the in the VFL. So it could be an option for halfback as well. I think Bruce and Jones will be needed for the tall and bulky and charged up power forwards Finlayson and Marshall who have had confidence building performance last week having kicked five goals each. Power are finding themselves in second position on the ladder and are looking healthy and dangerous. 
Last time Bulldogs played power in round five this year, Gather Round, uh, which was out in the wet and the local teams dominated uh, the visitors with the Dogs power game uh, going the way of power 10-10-70 to 8-8-56. Dogs had the lead in the third quarter after clawing back a healthy lead by power in the first. Waitman scored a healthy four goals and had nine score involvements. English had a best on ground game in the contest, as per recent, as were Trelaw, Bontaliba and McRae. So Power had some good scalps of late, including clutch win against Demons in a thriller and some close wins with teams performing as well as the Dugs or Pora. Last time Bulldogs hosted Power at Marvel was round 23 in 2021 when power surged with a few quick goals and took their only lead in the dying moments of the game which cost the dogs a top four spot which they didn't need uh because they still made the grand final it was one of those games where again there was not one or two clear lead uh goal kickers english got two most of the team had one uh and and power's midfield was well matched the dogs so it might be a clutch win again for power this year but dogs are in with a good chance at their favorite ground at home if they do make some changes or they change the psychology around goal kicking and how to get the job done hoping you will enjoy the game this week um i won't be able to watch it live unfortunately because i'll be working but I'm sure I can keep an eye on the score as we go. Uh, and I will review the game offline um, with the replay the next day, I think. Anyway, um, go dogs. So at the footy, I was still in good spirits most of the game and got chatting about the pod and whiskey at the halftime break. And I found a fan of Glenmorangie. Uh, but they hadn't had this Cadbowl estate yet. I thought it was a must try, so this review is for you. I can see Glenmo is releasing a new third batch this year, but in the UK only and has a Amontillado finish which is different from batch two, which is American Oak ex-bourbon casks only. Under the watchful eye of master distiller Dr. Bill Lumsden, who is one of the big leaders in whiskey today, who also looks after Ardbeg in Isla, this Cadbowl estate is situated just down the road from the distillery site in the Scottish Highlands and grows the distillery's own strain of barley, harvested and kept as a seasonal batch. Batch 2's barley from 2005 was then dried, malted, mashed, fermented, distilled in the famously tall giraffe-like stills and matured in American oak ex-bourbon casks only to create what Dr. Lumsden sees as his second go at his field-to-glass experiment. The giraffe is Glenmo's mascot, and I saw that they support giraffe conservation on their website, which is fun. So 
I had to taste this Cad Bowl estate for myself and like magic, this Cad Bowl has been one of my favorite whiskies of all time, but definitely my favorite Glenmo to date. My friend Will tried it when I first got it last year and we still talk about this one. On my trip over to Scotland, I had to see Glenmorangie for myself, which has been operating on the banks of the Dornoch Firth, just outside the township of Tain since 1843, and is now owned by LVMH, the large conglomerate of luxury goods Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, and produces classics like Glenmo Original 10, but I think where the citrusy, floral, and sweet spirit that Glenmo is uh, known for um, goes to another level with Dr. Lumsden experiments with different and exotic casks, um, which is kind of what he is famous for. But now Dr. Lumsden has his own industrial sized laboratory aside from the regular distillery site, which is purpose built to experiment with variables at batch quantities so there'll be many more exciting science juices to try in future, I'm sure. And now that Dr. Lumsden at his disposal has a whole tract of land to grow his own barley to his specification to optimize what he's trying to get out of his whiskey, then that adds another interesting layer to his work so far. So onto a tasting of this Glenmo Cadbol Estate. The color is a beautiful golden, bright golden color. On the nose, it's sweet. It's got vanilla, stone fruit, and that really famous Glenmorangie, orangey aroma. So like orange peel in there. On the palate, and then this is where the Cadball Estate comes into its own. It's extremely, extremely creamy. It's just, it's not like the oily triple distilled Irish whiskies. This is, it tastes like more like buttercream, or actually the, the texture is more like buttercream. The vanilla in this is a bit like what we had before where you get um, a malty cakey note, but through the palate, you're getting this through the creaminess, you're getting like an orange peel oil, apricot, nectarine, peachy flavor. And in the finish, because of this creamy mouthfeel, it's long and coated and you just get at the end, a bit of woody spice and a bit of nuttiness, like almond, like an almond oil note to it, I think. This Cadball Estate is really one of the creamiest Scotch whiskies I've ever tasted. And because it's lighter in flavors, the orchard fruits, almonds, multi-vanilla notes, it's, it's much actually a simpler tasting whiskey than some of the other more special uh, limited release Glenmorangies are. And probably I'm I doubt the Bat 3 would be as good as this, but would be willing to try. I just think that any kind of sherry finish addition to this beautiful Glenmorangie basically on steroids with the mouthfeel would maybe attenuated by adding like something else in there. But 
I think if you're a non-whiskey drinker just yet, um, that is Scotch whiskey, um, but you're a bourbon drinker, I think you would absolutely love this Cadbull Estate because in addition to those vanilla sweet notes that you're probably used to, you'd get an orangey citrusy note in there which would might be new um, but if you're new to brown spirits altogether i think this would still be a great start and if you did start here you might think that anything else is not as good honestly i do like whiskey with food of any sort but i think this dram is best savored alone or with a friend with little to no distraction and as a mid-afternoon treat or before or after dinner um, to bond a connection over this whiskey and served neat to appreciate the achievement that is this whiskey. And it's bottled at 43%, so it's got water added for you. Um, you don't really need to add anything to it. Um, you wouldn't need to even add a drop of water, I think. Um, but, you know, you give it a crack if you like but if you do want to hate yourself others in life and that uh, you hate all that is beautiful and holy and true in this world and you want to make the angels who would be otherwise busy taking their share from the casks for them to come down to take you to a special kind of hell when you do die a sad person along those people who add coke to delicious single malt whiskey or do shots of it after running out of goon be my guest and add something to it or eat something with it, but please do so with things on the milder side, like add a drop of water or serve with some mild cheeses, creamy desserts, fairly plain foods, plain cakes, or at most some white meat roasts like chicken or pork. Anything stronger I think may subtract some of the experience and make the giraffes cry and you wouldn't want that. As a single malt whiskey, ex-bourbon cask enthusiast like me, you will be very pleased and you'll just be dying to figure out whether it's really this strain of barley that has made a difference to this whiskey from the Cadball Estate or be it being co-located in some way just to make this Glenmorangie a cream bomb or is it like a combination of things whether it's because there's been controls done from the beginning um, by Dr. Bill Lobston um, in his genius ways, in his eccentric genius ways, and whether this field to glass experiment by Dr. Bill is actually a thing now, which actually can make di a difference to a final product, or is it just that they're just adding vegetable oil to this to make it <laughs> that texture? Who knows? <laughs> just on this field to glass concept in whiskey in products like coffee wine cocoa terroir is such an important part of a final product um, but whiskey is not traditionally known to have terroir and characteristics especially because it is a distilled product and also when it's done in mass quantities as it's done now from barley made to spec but in quantities not necessarily from the same farm or region or done on the same day or same season and that major differences between spirits comes from recipe and technique and equipment or essentially technical factors only and that 
really 60 to 72% of the flavor or the experience when you actually taste comes from that taken away or introduced by the interaction of the spirit with the wooden casks. Something is to be said about the natural products and processes that are based in geography and do play roles that are recognized, such as climate, at least for maturation side of things, the seaside versus inland for salt infiltration in the casks, and the mineral composition of peat bogs if peat is used in the malting process, as well as use of open washbacks to allow exposure to local yeasts, uh, and controversially, the mineral composition of the water used. Perhaps nowadays it's more labor and cost intensive for the Cadbola estate experiment uh, to continue in a, any real way or at other distilleries. And it was just, it, perhaps it was just there to challenge the notion that whiskey cannot have terroir and vintage by creating a strain of barley and growing it, harvesting and mashing it in batches with what is the same static and dynamic elements of the geography that goes into whiskey making to create, for want of a better term, but not in the hipster sense, a truly single origin whiskey that may be the start of a new generation of whiskies that have terroir or vintage characteristics. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that review of the Glenmorangie Cadbowl Estate Batch 2, 15 year old. And especially shout out to that one Glenmorangie fan out there who may be listening. I hope the rest of you get to try Cadbowl Estate sometime uh, soon, but if not, there are plenty of other tasty options that are more readily available at your local supplier from Glenmorangie. Again, if you do like the sound of the Whiskey Club because they do get these special whiskies inside the country every now and again, I have a referral link which you can check out on this episode's show notes or the pods link tree or just use the referral code 32887. After clicking, I was referred. If you're already on their website having a look at their past and next month's offerings, uh, and you put in this referral code, then we would each get a free wee sample of whiskey with our next deliveries. If you do sign up, we could record a little interview and wee tasting of the sample for the podcast and um, put it up there and then you can show your friends. The Whiskey Club's website also has videos from Dr. Bill Lumsden talking about his offerings and the Cadbowl Estate. And their Facebook page has great tasting videos as well. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tim Alfred and you've been a great audience. To follow socials, Instagram and Twitter, search Whiskey Bulldogs. Send me a message that way or email me or feel free to join and post in the Whiskey Bulldogs Facebook group. I've loved your posts of whiskey, doggies, and footy-related adventures so far, and also love reading your thoughts on Whiskey Bulldogs. Hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast today. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your fantastic podcasts. 
search Whiskey Bulldogs. On the Spotify platform, you can even send me a voice message or a question, and you might even get on the pod. I hope to make this pod more about you and what you want to hear. It means a lot, and thank you so much for your support and being a friend of the podcast. Go on, pour yourself a wee dram, and enjoy the footy. Until next time, cheers. Slange. Sante. Go dogs. Yeah.